In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. That's the cue for a changeover. Flip the projectors, movie keeps right on going, and nobody in the audience has any idea. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, I got a question for you. Yes. Uh, if you were in a dystopic universe where you had to find a, a partner, uh, you know, a mate after becoming single, but if you didn't make it past those 45 days, what animal would you choose to be? I'm putting you on the spot. Um, well, lately I've been, um, I've been kind of having like a relationship with squirrels. Um, they, <laughs> they, they're around my work a lot. And so like, I'll just abandon whatever I'm doing at work and then grab a handful of nuts and then go feed the squirrels nice and they're you know they're so cute when they eat they hold it in their two little like their two little hands and like nibble on the nut and it's just like most creatures are disgusting when they eat humans especially so <laughs> I'd, I'd like to be cuter when i eat so Aww. squirrel i could see you as a as a squirrel you'd be a nice Thanks. yeah it'd be twitchy, adorable you no know? it's a twitchy creature kind of like me it is it is I I've been thinking about it ever seeing the lobster, which is you know why we, why we bring this up and you know the movie we we reviewed uh, glowingly on our last episode of Adjust Your Tracking. So if you want to know how we feel about that, you can of course find that that previous episode. And I interviewed the director Yorgos Lanthimos on a recent playlist podcast. So there's there's a lot of love out there on the playlist for this movie, and we just wanted to remind folks that uh, that it's out there. It's it's going wider, especially. Uh, this Friday, the 27th, it's it's going to be in my city in Portland. It's It's been in L.A. for about two weeks now, right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's expanded. It was strictly at the Arclight Hollywood Theaters. It's expanded to other locations now, and it's probably going to go even wider after that to other chains. Yeah, it's had a couple good uh, weekends in limited release, so it looks promising, and <laughs> I, I think they will be able to expand it. And actually, A24, the distributor, I think they're going to be able to – I think that movie – could uh well i me saying this seems to doom any movie i care about to not the kind of box office i expect but i do think that this one seems like it's got more of that hook of just like a lot of people hear about this movie and they're like what the hell is that all about so yeah. I'm really i am hoping that that can that can help this movie but it's so i think something that's worth reminding listeners is um if you're hesitant or if you're just waiting like it is a film you should see on the big screen. Um, I don't even know if we re- we made that point clear enough in our last episode. And I've had some people ask me, like, yeah, I could probably just wait to watch that at home, right? Like, it's a comedy. I'm like, no, no, no. This is, like, a gorgeously visual movie, and the, the sound is beautiful, the music, all that. Like, I really do think it's a it's a big theatrical movie, so. Yeah, and I just don't, I don't trust people to eliminate their distractions at home. Like, I don't know anybody yeah. who has, like, a strict protocol with, like, movie watching i'm sure drew will um counter this with like well i i have a no cell phone policy in my rec room <laughs> super drew producer drew he, he likes his limits and his rules he, he keeps himself contained yeah but like most people like it's just the we, we can't belabor this enough but like the immersion of uh, a, a darkened room where you can just give yourself over to the film like this, this world is so thorough in the lobster that it's worth it. And like you're just, you know, I I was like thinking about this, about the constant debate between television and movies. Mm. Like you're just, I as good as TV has gotten in the past, like almost even decade. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't had an experience like Green Room or The Lobster, like in a television show. I've had gripping moments of television with like. 
like superb writing and like character work and great performances, but it's just like nothing like the total immersion of the theatrical experience. So like for a world this in depth and bizarre and fucked, like you should really go to the theater to experience it. Here, here, man. You want to know what animal I'd be? Yes. <laughs> That's so nice of you. Uh, I want to be either a sea turtle or a blue whale. I can't decide. I want to be something. A blue whale is like you both. I like the idea of being in the water, but a blue whale is so big. You'd be like the biggest creature on the planet. I think there'd be something very exciting about that. And swimming. Yeah, I, I want to see that scene in the lobster where you're debating, but where a flaky <laughs> person is debating between two animals and the very stern woman is just like, you have to decide. <laughs> that would have been great. The turtle. No. <laughs> And then, yeah, you just get eviscerated because of it. <laughs> the turtles do live long, you know, and I think blue whales right. do too. So I like that element. And the turtle element came from a recent viewing of Cannibal Holocaust where, good God, the poor fucking turtle in that movie, an actual turtle. It was really upsetting to me, like as it, as it is to anybody who watches that yeah. movie that has blood coursing through their veins. Because they killed an actual turtle in that fucking movie. But, um, you know, that's that's a story or maybe a talk for another day. But it really got me thinking about the turtles, man. I, I want to be mm-hmm. one. I, and I would I want to fight for the turtles. You're a private investigator? <clears throat> Look, there's 20 bucks in there, all right? Just take it. No, I'm not here for that. I told you. You and an old hired me. Yeah. If we can do this the easy way, we can do it the Glenn. hard way. What? Lily Glenn. Two ends. Old lady hired me to find her niece on Tuesday. You just gave up your client. I made a discretionary revelation. No, no, you just gave her up. I asked you one simple question. Ba, 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 ba. You gave me all the information. I thought that's what you wanted. What? The task at hand this episode, the, the big discussion is is uh, is Shane Black, the yeah. uh, the writer-director, mostly a writer for, for the majority of his career, but... Um, mm-hmm. We're going to be looking at him, but of course, we, we, the reason being, we, we, he's got a new film out that he wrote and directed, The Nice Guys. It stars, uh, I guess it's fair to say, our, our boy, Ryan Gosling. We, we tend to like the Goss, that's fair to say. True. We ride hard for, for Gosling. What I think of first when I want to talk about The Nice Guys is the performance from Gosling might be my favorite from him so far. It's, it's pretty incredible. Well, not to not to also like steal spotlight away from Russell Crowe, who's also incredible in it. This is um, true, and it's something that like is is you know worth kind of pointing out about Shane Black's work overall is that he he creates like this very familiar dynamic of like bickering, shit talking opposites who eventually have to work together, and like that's like he 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 didn't necessarily come up with the buddy comedy formula, but like he definitely crystallized it as a, a force to be reckoned with in the, in the late eighties with lethal weapon. And like the, that buddy movie chemistry, you know, that he revisits in the last boy scout long kiss, good night. Um, and then, and now in the nice guys, not to mention kiss, kiss, bang, bang, his directorial debut with the, the wonderful chemistry between Robert Downey jr. And Val Kilmer. Oh, but, yeah. um, he like there's something about the casting that is like absolutely essential to to like bringing this chemistry to life and it's the chemistry that like activates and electrifies each one of these movies in their own specific way and so i'd be curious you know if ever talking to shane black like how much of a hand does he have in the movies that he didn't direct in actually getting who winds up playing these parts 
Because, like, with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover in his first, uh, I don't know, yeah, it came out before Monster Squad. So, it did, yeah. Two, two screenplays produced in the same year, in addition to an acting, uh, not debut, but like a big role in Predator. So, 87, when Lethal Weapon and the Monster Squad came out, it's a big year for Shane Black. It's it was a good all year. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I wonder how much of a he had to have been like at least a consultant because it seems like uh, Joel Silver, who's kind of shepherded him through his career, you know, he produced Lethal Weapon, also produced The Nice Guys, and produced like all of his his films essentially. Um, like he must have had some sort of say into who wound up playing the lead characters in Lethal Weapon: mm-hmm. Riggs and Murtaugh, played by Mel Gibson, and Danny Glover, and like. The chemistry between the two of them, that's the movie. Like, they, the the tension and friction in the initial film is just, like, that's what make that, makes that movie sing. And, like, the villains in, like, re-watching it a couple times are, like, kind of, like, they don't really matter. Like, they're effective. Gary Busey is one of the villains, and he's very good in it. But it's, like, their interactions and their learning of each other and sort of, like, seeing how they overlap and then eventually the love the characters share with each other. Mm. It's like, that's the movie. Like the villains are sort of like set dressing, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, so the, the conflict takes like backseat to the, like the, the sort of like the mingling of these two halves. And like, it's, it's interesting. And especially with like the nice guys, like seeing the performances from like Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, where it's just like, it's almost like they you couldn't wait to see them play these characters. Yeah. One uh a dried out uh like kind of a, a muscle for hire who uh no longer drinks and is just angry and he's uh he's all kind of like reflex and just like quick to punch, quick to snap, quick th- to just like tear shit apart. I, th- I thought of his character in LA Confidential in a lot in this movie, which felt like yeah. this was the more comedic but like what happens to that guy? 15 years later kind yeah, of a thing. Plug yeah. him into a, a much more like a, a much lighter and buoyant context. And like, you're like, yeah, he is a comedic character, I guess. <laughs> and then Ryan Gosling as a terminally drunk, bumbling, uh, private detective, private detective, which would become like Shane Black's favorite trope and favorite character type from like last boy scout on. I, I feel like the, the conflict, the mystery in this movie is probably one of the stronger ones in 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 his like film work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but it it also is just like watching them wa- watch the like sparks fly between the two characters as they start off as like adversarial and then quickly come to like need each other it's like that's the magic of this movie is the chemistry between them and so it's just like i don't know like wa- watching like i didn't know i was waiting a long time to see ryan gosling playing a you know forever drunk <laughs> dick but, yeah, you, uh, you didn't know it. You didn't know you need it until you until got you it. Saw it. Yeah. 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 He's he is really something special. And I'm glad you bring up Crow as well, because he's the straight man. So it's not as sexy of a role. So, of course, you know, it's easier to like Gosling's performance more because it's like the flashy one. It's the one that will for sure. sure. But it wouldn't work if he couldn't if Crow wasn't there to leave in all the humor or just sort of add to the humor by being another voice of the audience of like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like every time he does something stupid, he has to point it out. And, um, but you know, having said that, I do like Crow. I love their chemistry too, because 
really the chemistry, as you pointed out, has to be the secret to the movie because mm-hmm. nice guys um, to uh, also connected to LA Confidential again, but even more so to Chinatown. Nice Guys is sort of a comedic take on that, right? Where you're using L.A. as a backdrop. It's a period piece. And right. it they use a sense of like, um, you know, in, in Nice Guys, it's the smog in the city. And it has to do with cars and Detroit and, you know, the fact that so many people drive in L.A. This is something you There's know. Smog alerts. Yeah. There's sirens that go off when you're supposed to be indoors. And it's interesting. Um, I mean, all detective movies eventually, like, owe a debt to Chinatown in some sense. But like Mm -hmm. Chinatown came out in the era that the nice guys is now set in Chinatown was like covering an era that was previously covered in, you know, prior detective movies, like in film noir and stuff like that. So it's like, it's an interesting kind of hall of mirrors of like movie references, you know, where (laughs) it's like, here's a movie that's referencing another movie that was referencing other movies. And so it's just like, it's, it's nice that like Los Angeles is that kind of puzzle box of references. And like, it, it's kind of beautifully explored in the nice guys as this, like, you know, kind of as this place of sunny decay and corruption and kind of like disgust. And like, you can feel the grime of the city, like even as it's trying to present itself as this like, like fantasy getaway, you know? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really like, uh, it's, he accomplishes that Shane Black really well in that in this film, and also just um, that the fact that like by the end it's an extremely bleak ending. But I was still laughing in the last five minutes because yeah. of that because of that chemistry, right? Because these characters could essentially walk me through the the most depressing movie ever, you know, like any depressing type of movie, but yet it somehow can not even somehow that it works and it doesn't make you want to like slit your wrists after because you're like, there's in a way it's like a hopefulness because even though these guys are bumbling and they're like the Gosling characters are quite a buffoon in a lot of ways. Like I really learned to like these guys. Like Gosling is a fuck up in this movie and such a, an, like he's a the balance he strikes and Shane Black did in writing the character in he's a cartoonish drunk right he's sort of a a very he he the, there's like slapstick humor physical humor that Gosling has to do because he's wasted all the time. Mm-hmm. Did you fall down the hill? I had like two three drinks tops. Yeah, that's why you can't walk straight. Oh, excuse me, I'm carrying a dead body and I have a schwanz in my face, so I'm sorry I'm not Kishner off. You can't even say Barishnikov. You did, didn't you? You yeah. fell down the hill. You get drunk, you lose your gun, you take your header off the balcony, and now you're going to tell me it's like a, a hallowed time on a detective ploy, right? It was very slippery up there, okay? I was, I was in the pool. You were in the pool? Yeah. Why? I had to question the mermaids. What were you doing while I was working? But he's also a very, not subtly drawn, but well three-dimensionally drawn person. Like, that's what drunks the ones I've met, that's kind of what they're like. Like there are real reasons this guy is, is a drunk and it, that's not taken lightly in the film that's built in there with, with him. And he's, uh, you know, you learn that his wife passed away and, uh, the reasons behind it are give you just enough. You, you know, plenty as to why this guy is where he is when we start in the movie. And then you add the, the, he's a single father now and he's raising his daughter, which I think is like the one element of Nice Guys where Shane Black actually can improve on his track record of not really doing as much 
uh, three-dimensional female characters in his films, you know? Like, that's certainly something that is maybe a weak spot for him or something he just, you know, he understands men better, so he's written better male characters. But I did really take to the young daughter character in this and the dynamic that um, Gosling and her have and what that means for him as a character, but yet... That's a that's a pretty good example. And then I you know, there's of course some other problematic, more problematic examples of female characters in this movie. I italicize problematic. Yeah, he <laughs> I mean he first kind of explored the um the precocious daughter of a private detective in The Last Boy Scout, mm-hmm. where Daniel Harris plays um Bruce Willis's daughter, and like she's she she's prepubescent. You know, she's going through this like adolescent phase where um, she's, you know, she's acting out and then she eventually becomes kind of like instrumental in like them kind of foiling the caper. And so it's just like that's something that he revisits stuff quite a bit in his in his movies. Like he's a, he's repetitive as Quentin Tarantino, which was a fair knock that you had on Tarantino for Hateful Eight last year. Yeah. Um, so like. All, most of his movies, with the exception of like this one, but the very tail end of the movie, spoiler alert, does take place at his favorite time of year, which is Christmas, apparently. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Weapon takes place at Christmas. Last Boy Scout vaguely takes place at Christmas. There's like weird drawings of Santa Claus that Danielle Harris, the character I was talking about, uh, draws as Satan Claus. And, um, and then Long Kiss Goodnight, Christmas. Iron Man 3, Christmas. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Christmas. Like all. Yeah, he loves like, that. Yeah, he now Lethal Weapon has become like as common as Die Hard as a sort of subversive Christmas movie that you can kind of choose if you want dead bodies in your Christmas film. <laughs> so, like, I just wonder, like, what like his sense of repetition, his kind of like worldview, like he loves private detectives. He's into precocious uh, preteen daughters. And like it's it like it's repetition. I think he's he's finding a way to perfect these things that we know and have come to like. So it's just like this character, I think is like the kind of like perfect version of that type that he's created Mm. um, in, in the nice guys. Like I think that Ryan Gosling's daughter, whose name I can't remember, but she's like her performance is outstanding. And the writing for the character is also outstanding. Whereas like the rest of the female characters in the movie are either hookers or duplicitous, corrupt, lying, you know, like murderous uh, people. And so, like, he's able to take male characters, throw just a heap of flaws at them, but no matter what, they somehow persevere because of some, like, just overwhelming good that's able to transcend all the flaws and fuck-ups about them. So, like, Ryan Gosling is a bumbling, like, it's a noir trope where it's just, like, they're, they're beat down, they're pessimistic, they're, like... They've just almost given up, but some part of them cannot just cannot let corruption, the bad parts of the world, uh, win. So they they rise to the occasion eventually. Like that. So that's what happens with like most of Shane Black's characters is they're they're flawed, they're incapable, and then somehow they rise to the occasion. It's not the same, unfortunately, for the women characters who are mostly mm-hmm. kind of there, you know, like to. They're 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 in need, or they're there to like basically ruin the lives of the men, you know. Yeah. The only one of the only kind of glowing exceptions is Trish Murtaugh in the Lethal Weapon series, which uh, Shane Black is uh, responsible for two of them, mm. 
the original, and then story credit for part two. But Trish Murtaugh is like she's especially in rewatching Lethal Weapon two yeah. with you, buddy. Um, <laughs> but seeing like she's such a strong, like independent force of a character, and like in the first one, Murtaugh is bringing Riggs home, like for the their their first kind of like night, and uh, he invites him to dinner. And the joke is he's making fun of his wife's cooking because she can't cook. Oh, hilarious. And then uh, he's he's making fun of what she's cooking. And she says, Raj, you're being an asshole. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, she like she runs the show. She's in charge. And she gets the laugh. And it's just like, I wish there were more characters like that throughout his films. Not to like Gina Davis, also in The Long Kiss Goodnight. She, she may be like the exception along with uh, Trish Murtaugh. I got a chance to watch that. Um, kind of back to back with Lethal Weapon in 2014 theatrically, mm-hmm. and uh, it was right around the time of like Ferguson and all the sort of like you know just like volatility of that period. And there's a there's a scene in Lethal Weapon where Mel Gibson and Danny Glover are interviewing these like three black children. I think I've maybe talked about this on a previous episode. They ask if like Danny Glover's gun is a real gun. And he goes, yeah, it's a real gun. And they they say, Mama says policemen shoot black people. And the whole audience, like, froze. And it was just like, <gasps> it's like, well, this movie is, like, almost 30 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was a poignant kind of socially charged, uh, like, darkly humorous moment. And it's just like, now it's, like, it's not any less true. And it's just, like, it's just brutal. And then in The Long Kiss Goodnight... Samuel L. Jackson, mm. outstanding in the so long good. night. Um, yeah. He's the private de- detective, <laughs> and uh, he shows up after like a, a scuffle at Gina Davis's character's house, and he's there just to kind of like pick up the pieces and help after all of the carnage has happened. He's like no part of like the gunfire. Cops screech to the scene, pull out their guns, and say "freeze," and he just like turns and kind of gives like a knowing look, like "of course, me, of right. course you," like. And the whole audience was like, oh, so seeing these like seeing Shane Black's kind of like cultural critique and like eye and ear for like, you know, taking these kind of charged moments, you know, he's he's a he's an aware person. Mm -hmm. And so like Mm -hmm. it's it it's interesting watching that like kind of develop over time and seeing it at work, you know, very early on in his in his stuff, you know, not to mention Monster Squad, which has some really. Um, uh, a queasy usage of the the f word, not not fuck, but another f word that this has become true. very uh, socially charged to to mishandle. I, probably fair to say the much more upsetting f word these days. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Nice Guys has um, scenes where <clears throat> there's a there's a there's a joke about uh, gay people, and of well, course, don't you think it was more? It was serving how how culture used to deal with exactly. certain things in a different era that seemed there for that reason to actually show you like, this is what it was like at the seventies and yeah. it's setting the period. It's setting the, you know, this it's the setting of the movie. So there's nothing wrong with still making humor to still point out like how fucked up that was that that's like, to me, that's the funniest thing about that joke is 
it's not that long ago, the 70s, and yet stuff like that was just common. You know, kids would watch yeah. that in school. Stuff that would horrify a millennial or any of us today if we were in school that would just be like, oh, boy. But well, you can put it in the context of a movie like that to make a point, and it is funny. To bring up Quentin Tarantino again, he, yep. he's been making period pieces for the last few films, and he seems to kind of poke at how, you know, like the way we've treated minorities in the past – and it, there, there is some squirmy quality is that oftentimes like he'll hit uh, a point of like how people used to speak, you know, using certain like charged and inflammatory words, mm-hmm. like he'll hit it for comedic purposes, which like it, it starts to like, there is something gross. I don't know if like it's intentional for him because mm-hmm. it's like his movies used to be set kind of like in weird limbo, like who knows when Pulp Fiction was supposed to be set. There's exactly. it's like a, a kind of like wash of like previous decades with like contemporary at the time moments and that now it's like specifically set in a locked in kind of reimagining of a specific period and so like this is when people used to talk this way and this is when people were like deeply culturally insensitive and like so you they use this word and they like he hits that word so aggressively you know what word i'm talking about Um, yes i do and and oftentimes for a punchline and like that's where it gets like squirmy and it feels like we're in an era now where like you know this is like the most squirmy you know like and (laughs) trying to trying to find like a way across like different political lines to you know like find a common ground like this is a squirmy era we live in it's always squirmy so um (laughs) so yeah but it's just interesting like what what hits and what doesn't, you know, and like Shane Black is a, you know, he, he traffics in like really dark humor, you know, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and rewatching Lethal Weapon not that long ago, the first one, like, that's a dark, dark movie. Mm-hmm. And like, cause he's got a very specific style as a director, um, in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and, you know, sort of like further kind of solidified in the nice guys mm-hmm. that I wonder if, you know, like his his first screenplays were produced when he was like 26, and uh, damn, like you know Richard Donner directed Lethal Weapon, Fred Decker, who was like I think around the same age as Shane Black directed The Monster Squad, but I wonder what his films would have been like had they been in his hands as a director. Mm. Of course, he had to develop, like he had to be around the kind of film world to develop the vocabulary in order to become a filmmaker, but like it took like a sort of reassured hand of like, you know, an elder, you know, like Richard Donner or like Tony Scott eventually with the last boy scout. And it's just like, it grounded it in a reality that like, it seems how non sequitur and how like, how absurd kiss, kiss, bang, bang. And, uh, the nice guys gets like, I wonder if like that, that, they would have, they'd be the same films as hot shit as he was in the late eighties and the early nineties. It's like, there's just that big gap later on, basically after long kiss Goodnight, where it's just like, it was so you didn't see or hear much from Shane black. And it's like, it's a shame, yeah. but I do think you get a sense of like, he was really honing and working on directing, but also with kiss, kiss, bang, bang. I think there's a reason people, you know, relatively the people that saw that movie got really excited about it. Cause it yeah. felt it, it was exciting. And then it's like, you go back and like, that's the guy who's behind all these like iconic movies from, from a certain right. period. Um, yeah, it, I'm glad he had to hone his voice, but 
it's nice that we're in a period now where like Shane Black is a director, right? He, he, yeah. he had Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Robert Downey Jr. probably really helped him get the job for Iron Man 3, which essentially must have led him to be able to make The Nice Guys. It seems like one of those movies where it's like a gift, you know, like you just made a billion dollars for Marvel or Disney. So um, why not give him a shot to make his own original, you know, another detective story set in the 70s? It, it like... It, it, it makes sense that he would get to make The Nice Guys after. And then, of course, uh, in a couple years, he's set to make uh, The Predator. I just I just looked that up before we got on mic. It's going to be The Predator. And mm-hmm. it's all it's being, you know, sort of um, it's being uh, placed as a sequel to the first film with Arnold Schwarzenegger, directed by John McTiernan. That, of course, had Shane Black in it. I think you mentioned mm-hmm. already. Uh, it, it's all very circular. And that's exciting. Like, I'm actually excited to see what he's going to do with The Predator. And regardless of whether Arnie comes back or, <laughs> hell, even Danny Glover from the sequel, there was rumors that he might be in it. I, I doubt it. But, like, I'm, I'm, yeah, I just, I want to see, I do want to see what he's going to do something, do with that franchise. Because that's a franchise that needs to be sort of course corrected. Because there's one great film in the first and then everything else. Uh, yeah. sp- especially when they combine with those alien movies, it's just like it's really stupid. And um, I'm excited that we're in an era of Shane Black movies. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, he can he can be a little problematic. He can be a little messy, maybe, or not um, not as not not as good at writing female characters. Like these are things that he can improve on still. And I'm still um, I'm still liking seeing him develop as as a director. Yeah, it's also an interesting moment of where we are, um, you know, just in, in terms of the industry with someone like him, because he's very like, he's, he's, he's like a figure of someone who like at a very young age got like a lot of money and heat and interest from his like script for lethal weapon. Mm -hmm. Like he was probably, I don't, I don't know, probably 24 when the script got sold for a quarter of a million dollars. Jesus. And uh, so yeah, like he's he's that young writing a character like uh, like Murtaugh, who's like fifty years old, and it's just like of course if you're a good writer you can write for like all ages, all types, but like th- that's such a kind of like humanized character, mm. you know, like further fleshed out by Danny Glover's performance, which is like you know one like one of my favorites of his. Yeah, and. Um, but like he was just so young and so like there was probably like a tremendous amount of pressure on him and so like but that's he still was one of those figureheads that was like oh this like he's he's a hot shot screenwriter and he's sort of like you know he's solidifying this new trend the buddy movies which seemed to like go on forever before they like got murdered you know um and you know resurrected with movies like the nice guys Mm -hmm. and uh but like he he was just he was such a like titan of the industry at one point, shepherded by Joel Silver, who was like had had his hand in like all of your favorite stuff from the eighties, you know, like Weird Science, Commando, Predator, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, just all like onto the Matrix movies in the nineties and two thousands. Like he just had his hand in everything, and so like there are these people who are like larger than life, like just huge figures, and like. Shane Black, you know, got a million dollars for Last Boy Scout, which I don't think did that well. Certainly, you know, well enough to cover the expense of buying the script for a million dollars. But like, 
it wasn't as runaway of a success as Lethal Weapon was. And then he got $4 million for The Long Kiss Goodnight, which I think probably did fine, but also wasn't like the huge smash that they were expecting. So Right. It was even kind of labeled a bomb, but I think, like you said, if you look a little closer, it's not necessarily that, but it was hyped as a bomb, I think. Because, you know, the industry, they were responding to all the money he got, so it's like an easy target. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, that's that's just a kind of, like, grotesque way of, like, looking at it. Yeah, sure, maybe $4 million is not warranted, but it's, like, why don't you actually look at the film itself, the strength of it, which I think it's a good movie. Like, uh, Rennie Harlan made a good film. He also made <laughs> Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Anyway, um, which I think Shane Black kind of, its term, like, its tone of absurdity sort of borrows a little bit hmm. from adventures of ford fairlane moving on i don't want to belabor ford fairlane but it's like it's it's interesting where we're at because it's like i went to go see a screening that joel silver shane black russell crowe ryan gosling were at russell crowe and ryan gosling were just like bantering and shit talking like they fell just straight out of the screen last action hero style but you could sense that like joel silver and shane black were like a little uneasy and like they were kept making reference to like the movies that they were going to be up against the weekend the nice guys came out the questions that were being asked were being filtered through Warner Brothers mm. and so like the guy running the Q&A which bless his heart he had a hard job because like there was a real lag period of like when he was getting questions because they had to like process them and be like what's an appropriate question we got to because they had to like tailor oh wow how the film like how the film was being like uh, kind of like scene and yeah. so eventually like Shane Black was like what's going on with the like lag time between the questions and the guy was like ah, well, uh, well I mean they're taking a while to like field all the questions because they were coming through Twitter oh, and God. so yeah so it was like really uneasy and like you could see Joel Silver probably is like <clears throat> if you saw him in his element he would be a frightening but hilarious like blowhard yeah. you know just seeing him like kind of come to life screaming on the set. Um, Chopping on a cigar like an old school producer. (laughs) Exactly. But like he was very reserved and he kind of held himself and then like would occasionally say things like, I mean, I I think the audience wants to see, uh, you know, more of these movies, like like in terms of like sequels, which people applauded. And I'm not in disagreement. Like I'd love for to see these characters again. But the fact that he was having to kind of like pander to what is the only way for films to survive and exist, which is in franchise form now, mm. was like that was disheartening. Yeah. And you could just sense there was an apprehension. And I was like, why are like they, they like we had just seen the movie. Mm. I saw how it played to a packed audience. They loved it. And like it works. The movie works. It's a good script. It's a like beautifully realized film with great performances and so it was just like wow like they're this worried about this movie and like now that we're we're recording this after the opening weekend of the film yeah you know it probably in their eyes underperformed like it came in fourth and like with like 11 million or something like that yeah so it's just an interesting era where like he like they defined a certain period in time as like these were big big movie juggernauts you know and like and now that type of movie is so like that that type of experience that they crafted that they got so good at that like drew audiences in that audiences loved 
like that's that's so specialized that they don't know how to sell it to modern audiences. And yeah. that's that's scary to me, you know, and like now we're we're in this like kind of bizarro world where like initially for like years this script has been around and he he like tried to pitch it I think to CBS as a TV show, which it could work just as well as. Yeah. But now Lethal Weapon is a TV show and it looks <laughs> terrible. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for it. I have. I can't even bring myself to watch trailers now. I mean, like, of some of these TV because now there's, like, an Exorcist TV show. There's, like, everything's yeah. being mined for TV shows now, so it's, like, remakes. That's, the, that's where to go. You yeah. know, like, that's the place to go to, kind of, like, hearkening back to the beginning of our conversation about, like, it's the golden age of TV is what people said a few years ago. Yeah. But it's just, like, it's, it's not going to have the same effect. And, like, I don't know. Like, I love being able to see a movie like The Nice Guys in the theater because it's cinematic. It's big. It's larger than life. And it's like, it's hilarious and yeah. like out of control at times, you know? It's so fucking funny. And who doesn't want to see that in a group? Like, with a group, that's what makes comedies even more funny is when everybody is laughing. It's, the, it's so, yeah, that yeah. is a great theatrical experience. And I want more movies like that, too. But they probably were nervous for good reason because... Uh, friend of the show and my co-host on Over Under Movies, Ryan Oliver, brought up on Facebook, like, why put out two R-rated comedies on the same weekend? Like, it had to go up against Neighbors right. 2, and yeah. that movie underperformed as well. Well, I I think it's fair to sort of analyze that and say, well, the movies probably cut into each other's... Um, Demographic. Exactly, right? And then it's too bad, but also I... I, I I feel like by the end of this year, if Warner Brothers continues with their really... Uh, a poor showing at the box office. Like, I think we're going to see a lot of shaking up happening at that studio because they look like lost balls and tall grass right now because their big movie was Batman and Superman, the two biggest, most famous comic book heroes in one movie for the first time. And that movie has already been leaped far. Like, Captain America has made so much more money already than that. Really? Oh, my God, yeah. And then you look at how... All the attention and money they did put into Batman v Superman is you essentially see how they gave much less resources to Midnight Special, which was a movie that was, I think, very um, we both loved it. And I think, uh, you know, it's a good enough movie. There's no reason that movie shouldn't have done better. And they didn't they didn't give it the push it needed. They didn't they didn't know what to do with it. And it it seems like the same thing with nice guys. And they, well, no, but they've been pushing nice guys hard. This is true. This is everywhere. Yep. So like it, it, it does become like, maybe they did mishandle midnight special because they didn't know how to sell it, but it's clear that, you know, the studio knows good scripts. They know good films. They just don't know how to like necessarily sell them to audiences because the audiences aren't there. Like we said on the last episode, like film isn't necessarily dead, but the audience seems to be. Mm, yeah. yeah. I, it's maybe it's not fair for me to say we said that. Cause I said, I don't want to put words in your mouth. A film like this, that feels like, like one of the most realized Shane black visions. Like, it's just like all these things that he's, he's come to like be like to repeat, you know, like, types of characters, types of interaction, like the, 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 the magic of like the characters bouncing off each other with like witty shit talk. That's where I know you from, right? The TV. You're prosecuting that, that car company thing. The lawsuit for the catalytic converter, yes. That's half my day. The other half I spend on pornography. What kind? Like which films? What's your favorite? No, no. <laughs> Anti, anti-porn. 
Right. Like a crusader. Should I be writing this down? Yeah, write it down. The Vegas mob is trying to spread its porn operation to Hollywood Boulevard. And I'm doing everything I can to stop it. Thank you. Porn is bad. This feels like one of the most satisfying incarnations of all, all those types. And that used to be something that people liked. This movie doesn't feel dated necessarily. It's got a, a very like contemporary urgent energy. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it's just like this could appeal to huge groups of people. Why it's not is a fucking mystery to me. And seeing studios like support movies like this and then eat shit on it potentially. I don't know. It could pick up steam. Who knows? Like in 11 million isn't nothing. But I'm sure it was very expensive in this day and age to make this movie because it's like it's not cheap looking. It's all on the screen. This is true. And just like seeing studios like believe believe enough in scripts, believe in the production, believe in filmmakers, you know, and then just not know how to appeal to like the the world that's still going to the movies is like that that is disheartening. And seeing them do like cartwheels to try to get people interested in the nice guys by like throwing influencer screenings and stuff like that and trying to like get Alamo Draft House because that I think that was a really smart angle. Alamo Draft House sponsored a bunch of screenings of the movie. Yeah. So you got film nerd culture kind of like you know, shepherding this movie like into the, like their groups and be like, you guys will love this movie. Mm-hmm. And probably those people were, you're preaching to the converted. They were all going to go anyway. Sure. But it was just like, that's where they see this. This is niche. Now this like kind of huge movie is now niche. And it's just like, that's a, this is a weird period to be in. It is man. I used to love to go see the, the R rated summer action movies. They are just so yeah. few and far between now. And nice guys is a brilliant mix of action and just great comedy. Yeah, it's, it really is a shame. I think you put it perfectly. Like there, there has, there are people that would love this movie that just are not being reached or are indifferent, maybe. Or yeah, I I think it is an indifference. Mm-hmm. I really do because like I feel like that argument that you brought up earlier with like the lobster and people being like, well, I can see this at home. Like I feel like that's most people nowadays. They're just like they don't like they're not going to the theater unless it's the event movie they're just nullifying everything because it, there's just such an emptiness to the experience. I'm surprised you haven't heard about me. You know, I got a bad reputation. I mean, sometimes I just go nuts like now. <laughs> Don't move. I'll make a deal with you, Arjun. Arjun, is that or Arian or whatever the fuck your name is? I'll make a little deal with you. You fold up your tents and get the fuck out of my country. And I won't do anything to you. I'll leave you alone. Because if you stick around here, I'm going to fuck your ass. I'm going to send you home with your balls in a sling. You got that. Hold up. Wait a minute. Now just wait. Hold up is uh, a segment that you, Mr. Von Oppen, came up with a while ago. A, a great one that we've continued on the show that we just examine movies from our past. The idea was born from looking at movies that we like but tend to be problematic in their reputations. People thought maybe critically reviled or didn't make money or whatever it is. And it's evolved into a thing where really we just want to look at movies that we care about, whether they have good reputations or bad, and just re-examine them. 
Um, so you had chose uh, you chose Lethal Weapon two, and we of course got to watch that together uh, very excitingly last week while you were visiting Portland. Yeah. And um, I I I th- I told you before we started it that I I really had never seen all of Lethal Weapon two, so I got to I got to check that one off my list. But um, what what made you wanna what made you wanna reexamine Lethal Weapon two specifically? Well, it's it's one that's kind of argued as like, you know, like not not entirely, but it's argued as being potentially better than its predecessor, which is kind of unheard of. There are like a few examples, like Godfather Two is argued it's better as than Godfather One. Some people might think that Aliens is a stronger film than Alien. You can everybody can hiss if they want. Um, you know, Empire Strikes Back. You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Like because that argument was out there, I just wanted to kind of use that as a as a way to like maybe investigate. Like, is it a stronger movie? Like it did. I think it did better box office than its than the previous film. Even though like Lethal Weapon was a huge hit, um, it came out as a summer film in 1989 <clears throat> when Warner Brothers was doing very well. The movie starts just screamingly, like it, like it, literally, like yeah. it starts with uh, Mel Gibson screaming in the squad car in pursuit. Like you don't know what's going on. It just drops you into the middle of the action, which I think, if anything, Lethal Weapon Two is maybe a superior action film to Lethal Weapon One. Yeah, like the the, char- the villains are more kind of eh, they're a little more cartoonish. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> you have South African diplomats playing these like corrupt uh, Los Angeles based hmm? drug dealers. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, they become they're drug dealers. They're laundering money, um, and so like it's it was an interesting kind of take at the time. Like it, the South African divide and like the apartheid movement and like seeking to like end apartheid kind of became like articulated for me as a kid through like rap music and then through like lethal weapon two. It's like, what, well, I don't know what that, what's apartheid. And yeah. so I like found out. <laughs> and so like the liberal politics of the movie was, were like, it was interesting to sort of implement them into like what's otherwise a body action comedy. But, um, yeah. So like, I think the movie really has like an amazing clip to it has a, has a nice momentum and they, they do enough good character work and we'll, you know, we can speak on one scene in particular, but like, I think that what the first movie does so beautifully is introduce the characters mm-hmm. and you see them through like a series of like really incredibly well-written scenes, figure each other out. And like, there, that's something that like, I find when I see it again in modern movies, like modern entertainment films, when you're like, that's a scene, like that's a great scene. Like they're, the scene on the the ledge in Lethal Weapon where he's talking the where Riggs, who's a suicidal cop, mm-hmm. is talking a jumper down from the building. Like that's it's hilarious and gripping, and it's just like it's an example of like just a great moment. If anything, the clip and urgency of Lethal Weapon Two it doesn't really afford that much time for. So it's like I I do think in like re-examining it, Lethal Weapon Two is a stronger action film. But in terms of like the character work is completely on display in Lethal Weapon 2, but like a lot of the the effort was made in the first film, you right. know, yeah. to establish them. So it's just like you can't really have one without the other, but I would argue that it is a more effective thriller. The sequel, yeah. So it's in that sense it, it did hold up for you on on that <clears throat> spectrum. And I guess 
and I don't mean this as a slight against it. It's, it was sort of typical of what a sequel is, right? Like you've already established all the character, the origins yeah. and all that in the first one. So double down on the action. Give us more of that. You know, you say the action is better in the sequel. For me, what I really took to upon watching it was was those moments. And there's two in particular, and we talked about them after watching it, was like uh, the one between um, Mel Gibson and then... Uh, I, forgive me. He's uh, you're gonna hate me. He's Riggs, right? <laughs> he's Riggs. He's Riggs. Danny so Mur- Murtaugh. right, and Murtaugh's wife. I should actually look up the character's name. Forgive me. Trish. They they have a scene together where they just talk about this. Uh, it, it's a pen that she finds, right? Like an old pen, and it mm-hmm. connects to Mel Gibson's wife, and it's like connective tissue to that first film in a nice way, but also just a nice little moment that they get to have together that is separate from his buddy cop relationship that these movies are built on with Danny Glover. And it kind of makes the world bigger of the, of these characters. Like it, it makes that more fully fleshed out in a really refreshing way. There's magic in those fucking moments. Like, and the, the scene you're talking about between Riggs and Trish where like, he basically explains like how his wife died. Mm. Like there it's this, like it's beautifully played. And it's like the, the chemistry that, the entire cast has, and I remember in *Lethal Weapon* four, arguably the worst of the series, <laughs> like they they were. It was understood that this was the conclusion of of that franchise in air quotes, and so like the the closing credits is just like kind of behind the scenes footage, most not footage but like pictures, and a lot of them like they're all laughing. So it's like these people like they loved each other. They earned the chemistry that they had with one another. And so, like, watching that, it's like, it's a gift. And, like, the next scene, I think, that you're maybe going to reference is where, like, the, the the villains of Lethal Weapon 2 are basically starting a killing spree of all the cops involved in the ev- investigation. And Murtaugh is, uh, Riggs rushes to his house because he hasn't, like, been answering calls from the department. And he's on the toilet when he finds him. Yep. And you realize that he's sitting on a bomb and the second he moves off of it, it's going to explode like that as a as a visual gag that as a scenario, it's comedy. It's yep. like a toilet's going to blow up funny. And it starts that way. It starts. And this is a movie that's like the jokes are amplified much more than the first one. The first one's funny, but like this one is definitely like an engine of, of jokes. And it would kind of go further and further with each iteration. Like three is like. Joe Pesci's character who's introduced in the second film is like even more of a cartoon, you know? And it's, so it's just like the jokes get increasingly more absurd as they go along. This one, like it's a lot of jokes and here, arguably one of the most like obvious ones it's played for drama and like tenderness. And it's a fucking, it's an amazing scene Yeah, where Riggs refuses to leave Murtaugh's side as the bomb squad arrives. Guys like you don't die on toilets. Anyway, I'm here and I'm not planning on going just now. Okay. Let's do it. What? Mart. What? Yeah, I know. I know. Maybe, man. I hear you. Their exchanges, similar to like the Trish and Martin Riggs scene, like 
it's really like it's touching in this way that's like holy shit like this is like a funny scenario and it's played as like the heart of the movie essentially you don't really get that kind of like attentiveness as much anymore and it's like it's a shame. The the other thing I kind of miss upon watching this is like, and it feeds into nice guys maybe not doing as well. Is like there were a lot of like R rated action movies that were like the big movies of this era, and we yeah. have really lost that. And I'm not saying a movie has to be bloody and violent or have swearing cool. or whatever that garners a rated R an R rating to be good, but. Lethal Weapon 2 was really entertaining to watch. I, it was like, it was another one of those examples, Joe, where like we revisit a movie that would have been considered big and loud at the time. And we're like, it's like, look at how quaint and like yeah. intimate at times, as you explained with the, the toilet scene or the scene I brought up before that with Trish and Riggs is like, it's like, this just don't happen anymore. And that's too bad that that gets lost. Cause that stuff should always have a place in movies because it's character stuff. It's, it's filmmaking. It's good filmmaking. And yeah. lethal weapon two was a really fun reminder of like, you know, they just, they just don't do this anymore. It is interesting that like the, like the films that are argued as kind of like dumb, big blockbusters are like these examples of, of movies with like nuance and artistry that were sort of like, you glossed over at the time, you know, cause it right. was just like, they, they were the norm kind of. And like, they were they like, they may have been something that you like other filmmakers rallied against because they're like, Oh, there's, they're just big, like reckless blockbusters. And it's just like, now those have gotten so like titanically out of control that like the, the, the previous decades versions of them do seem intimate and do seem like they, they, they have like, an integrity and a, and a nuance that like is hugely missing. Agreed. And they also have tight goddamn running times compared to yeah. two and a half hour, three hour long comic book movies. God, if there has to be a reason a movie should be that long, a good one. And um, I feel like a lot of those filmmakers these days just equate running time length with like quality or, you know, getting your money's worth for the event. Right. It's, it's essentially like, our roller coaster will last longer than the other roller coaster. Right. You're, yeah, it's this like need to get your money's worth, which is like if, if you actually equate it with like satisfaction, like that's where you're gonna feel like you're you got your money's worth. So yeah. if you have like a tight ninety minute movie, there's not everything has to be ninety minutes. Of course like not, not. Not everything has to be a Barry Sonnenfeld movie, but like <laughs> But like if you if you're just padding it just to do that, just to give it a sense of girth and like you got your Costco movie experience, then like then then you're going to end up overstaying your welcome and you're going to end up exhausting people. And they're not and therefore they're not going to feel satisfied. They're going to feel like bowled over like, yeah, sure, that worked. And like <laughs> just because like I think I feel like there's a, a certain amount of checked outedness with like modern audiences with like, did you like it? I saw it. Well, did you the like end. it? All, yeah, I saw it. The end. <laughs> I gotta go. I don't want to talk you anymore. Know, my Rotten Tomato reviews are just gonna be like, I saw it. <laughs> what did you feel about it? Well, I saw it. Okay, okay, fine. You saw it. Great. Meanie. Meanie. Hey, Mom!
And let's transition into the end of this episode, episode 131 of Adjust Your Tracking. Um, it was a lot of fun watching Lethal Weapon 2 with you, my friend, last week. Yeah, that was really nice. Yeah, that was good. More of that when we get to have hangouts and visits, for sure. Um, we got to do that on the regular. Um, yeah, you can find these podcasts uh, now. They exist on theplaylist.net, which is now the new independent uh, site for the playlist and you can just click on the podcast tab up top and it's got all our new episodes that are on the playlist podcast network it's uh, essentially our channel of shows so there's us adjust your tracking there's the the occasional playlist podcast where i just sort of do something newsy or add interviews with directors and then there's uh, our other show over under movies that uh, i also co-host i'm on way too many i'm on all these shows and that's way too many joe i i need i need to i need some time off man i need i need a break yeah you deserve it <laughs> thanks um but of course we are there and you know down the road i'm sure we'll be adding more shows and uh we'll we'll see what we'll be adding to the channel but um you can find uh all them show all those shows on the playlist uh podcast itunes feed we're on soundcloud as well you can email adjust your tracking at adjust your tracking at gmail.com we're on facebook where where else joe twitter somewhere twitter at adjust your track Right. Um, you know, come, come, come talk to us there while it's still there. Exactly. And hopefully we'll continue to be there. We're getting more and more followers. I'd like to say that, um, anybody that gets this far on the podcast, you clearly, uh, I think you at least enjoy listening to us or we aggravate you enough that you continue to listen, hate listen, but, uh, regardless, give us a review on iTunes for the playlist podcast, iTunes feed. That can be really really helpful um star ratings and if you want to write anything it's just very very helpful and you can include um all three of the shows if you want or just one of them do whatever you got to do but help spread the word for the playlist podcast and and the site theplaylist.net um we'd be very thankful if you did that um but of course we got to thank our super producer drew walner for all the work he does behind the scenes keeping us afloat here but um more than anything joe i'm just thankful even though it's not in person like the last episode, I'm always glad to get on the mic via Skype with you and have a chat. Thanks, buddy. You want to fight as a turtle? Sure. Okay. Well, there's a movie coming out for you in a couple weeks. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. What is it? Um, what one are you talking about? TMNT 2 Out of the Shadows. Oh, I was thinking. Never mind what I was thinking. Um, of course. <laughs> of course. Jeez, I was... You couldn't put that reference together that <laughs> we're talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm sorry. I should have been able to put together what you were thinking. I, I struggled, Joe. I don't make the synapses do not always fire in the brain for me. It's true. I mean, you could argue that it's early in the morning, but it's not. So, um... (laughs)